hello, hello. Welcome to Peace Mindedly, a podcast featuring peaceful bridge makers. This is Sarah Jamshidi, your host today. A conversation today is an important conversation for me personally because I have first-hand experience of what happened to the person that we are discussing and also journalism that is very uh, dear uh, in my heart and I practiced journalism back in back in Iran. To explain all of those, I have a group of experts that I am very uh, excited and fascinated to have for our program. Nazila Fathi is uh, the author of The Lonely War, One Women's Account of a Struggle for Modern Iran and former New York Times correspondent in Tehran for more than 18 years. Barbara Slavin is the Distinguished Fellow at Simpson Center and also former Director of the Future of Iran Initiative. And Karan Nazish is award-winning journalist and founding director of Coalition for Women in Journalism, short for CFWIJ. Very, very welcome, ladies. I am super excited to have you in our show. First, let me explain what's actually happening in Iran and for our conversation, and then we are going to go right into the discussion about the about the subject. So we are talking about Nilofar Hamedi and Elahe Mohammadi and the faith of journalism in Iran. Hamedi and Mohammadi were among the first reporters who uncovered the death of Mahsa Amini, the 22-year-old woman who was detained by Iran's morality police and and for improper hijab, for bad hijab, and basically she um, died three, three, three days later in a, a hospital. Uh, for those of you who do not know morality police, they are people who are strolling in the streets of Tehran with very big cars and they stop women for not having proper hijab. They arrest them and the fate of those women are really in the hands of those people. Uh, I've been arrested for a bad hijab. So it's usually depends on from um, simple warning to uh, whipping and lashing and, and um, so many other very, very horrible things. So Maso Amini died in the custody of uh, morality police in, in Tehran. Nilofar Hamedi broke the story by publishing photo- photographs of the uh, lying brain dead uh, Maso Amini. And Elahe Mohammadi wrote about the story and about the funeral. Hamedi and Mohammadi's uh, reporting caused a very, very big spark. And right now it's a full-fledged revolution in Iran. According to the latest news uh, that we received today, these two journalists may face a death penalty. And we are going to unfold all of those here in this program. This program is partnered with Journalism and Women Symposium or JAWS. I'm very excited to have you all. Thank you so much. Nazil, I wanted to start with you. I wanted to see how it's like to work in Iran and to uh, conduct or, or file stories. Just give me the rundown of how you did uh, your work back in Tehran. Uh, Sarajun, hi. Thank you so much for having us here. And thank you for having this very timely discussion. You know, I can talk about my own experience, but I haven't been in Iran for almost uh, 14 years now. Things have changed. uh, And I would say it has changed for the worse for reporters on the ground, as you said, just telling the truth uh, about something that happened. And uh, it was reported in by even uh, news agencies inside the country and and to now face a death sentence is just horrifying 
it was definitely not like this when I was in Iran. Um, I started working as a reporter in uh, the mid 1990s, and that was still during a very difficult time. Uh, Khomeini, the founder of the revolution, had died, and Rafsanjani, who had become sort of a, a more pragmatic uh, president, uh, was in office. And it was, I think, the, er the first year since the revolution that they allowed people work for foreign. Uh, media. And when I started out, I was not allowed to write. Uh, I never had a permanent press card. Everywhere I wanted to go, I had to get permission. I had to notify the government through a place called the Ministry of uh, Islamic Guidance and Culture where I was going. However, that changed over the years. And uh, by the late 1990s, when Khatami came to office, things were a lot different. Uh, there were many, many uh, local reporters, and I believe you were among them, uh, who were doing the hard job. They were writing for what we called reformist newspapers back then. And so that made um, the job easier for us, too, for those of us who were working with foreign reporters. And for the first time, I think the government or, or the regime realized that it was time to present a new image of the country. And we were the perfect people to do it. And when I say we, I'm referring to us as Iranians who spoke English and we were trusted by the reporters that we worked with, like Barbara. So they, they decided to let us work, give us some, some freedom. And it was then that I started getting like press credentials that were longer than a week. They actually lasted for three months or for a year. The longest press credential that I had was an annual one. I had to uh, renew it every year. But working gradually became easier. Uh, we had much more access. I wasn't required to notify the government wherever I was going. And I always had the freedom to pick up the phone and call people. But that came to a dramatic stop uh, in 2009, which is when I had to leave the country. That was during the, the so-called uh, so green uprising, or some people refer to it as a green revolution. I don't like to call it revolution because revolution means change and we never saw any kind of fundamental change. Um, and I left the country, uh, but from what I heard, from colleagues who, who stayed behind, um, things didn't get easier. So I wonder, uh, Barbara, you were in, in and out of Iran many, many times. And the last time you were, I believe you said that was 2013. Is that right? How, how was it? I mean, if you compare of the visits that you have had in the country, uh, what kind of change did you see in, in Iran? Um, first of all, thank you very much for in inviting me. Um, you know, it was a fascinating experience. Uh, every trip was was different. I felt lucky that uh, I started going when Rafsanjani was president, and then I was able to go a number of times when Hatemi was the president, and so experienced a kind of explosion of uh, Iranian media. I mean, there were so many different newspapers to read and many, many journalists which also, as Nazala said, made it easier to be working for a foreign news organization. Uh, it was easy to get people to translate. I also found that many Iranians spoke English. 
And so uh, after a while, I would make friends and I would be able to actually go and see people without taking a translator, uh, sometimes not taking a driver. I'm sure the government probably knew who I was seeing anyway, but I gave myself the illusion of freedom. I think what I noticed also most of all was how uh, Iranians became more aware of what was going on in the world. The, when I first started going there, there was, of course, no Internet. There wasn't even really satellite television unless you, you had a dish. And so in the hotel where I stayed, there, there was nothing. I used to have to go to the offices of a French news agency, Agence France Presse, uh, once a day to send my stories and also to find out what had happened in the world. It was like being dropped into a black hole. Uh, but that changed. And in subsequent visits, um, I, there was CNN suddenly in the hotel. There was uh, a business center where you could send stories. And then, of course, there was the Internet. There was wireless Internet and you could actually communicate. Now, perhaps people were eavesdropping on what you were writing, but but there was communications. Uh, mm -hmm. The Internet so changed Iran, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and Absolutely. Uh, so, so you you had this this greater opening of the society at the same time as Nazala said the the environment uh, you know went up and down. 1999, when I believe you left, there was the crackdown on Salam newspaper and the crackdown on uh, protests at Tehran University. Student was killed. Uh, Hatani was almost overthrown and was told that he had to agree to the crackdown or he would be overthrown by the, the IRGC. Uh, other visits I went, I mean, my favorite visit, frankly, was after the September 11, 2001 attacks when there was a kind of uh, outburst of pro-Americanism in most sectors of society. It was really quite lovely. Uh, but of course, that changed under Ahmadinejad and mm -hmm. uh, uh, he liked journalists. He liked foreign journalists in particular. So I had very good access to Iran when Ahmadinejad was president, strangely mm -hmm. enough. And it yeah. ended when Rouhani was inaugurated. That was the last mm -hmm. time I got I got a visa to go there. Mm -hmm. I, I think is rather rather strange. Um, but of course, we monitor and and we monitor thanks to the work that Iranian journalists have done and continue to do. And I think we were talking earlier about how it seems like it's this uh, kind of uh, uh, pool of people that once one group leaves the field, emigrates, stops being journalists, gets thrown in prison, whatever, you have a whole new group of people who step up and do the work. Nevertheless, it's uh, it's never easy. Karan, I remember we were talking about your work and uh, the groundwork that you are doing of helping many of the reporters. And you were explaining that uh, Nilufar was one of the people who was really endangered for the work that she was doing. And she knew many of us. I mean, e even myself, maybe Nazila, we knew that we were putting ourselves in danger of just doing or reporting on the on a, a stories that government or the authority do not want us to fight. So can you, from going back to many, many years to now, tell us, um, uh, tell us about your work? So first of all, thank you. And it's also really nice to hear, to, uh, hear Nazila and Barbara talk about their experience uh, a while ago. And like Barbara's last point is that, uh, you know, a lot of times journalists just leave and they emigrate and then there's a new group of journalists and that is something that was very surprising to us so i will say 
we got more involved in Iran. Um, I will say we are a press freedom uh, organization focused on gender. And um, there are very few countries that are absolutely in, impossible for us to work on the ground. And Iran is one of them. Russia and China are, are, are two other countries. We, we monitor 128 countries. And, and Iran has always been one of Karen, the top why, countries. Why Iran? Why it's very difficult uh, to monitor countries it's, like it's Iran? It's difficult to get visas. It's difficult for us to, um, if we have our own staff, it's difficult to have security for them. And I'm talking about way before these protests, right? Like say to 2018, 2019, when we're building our networks, it was impossible for us to to have anyone, a representative on the ground. Um, and there are very few nonprofits. You know, anyone who has worked in Iran knows that now we don't have a lot of nonprofits um, or international organizations who have the ability to work in Iran transparently. Um, the way we have been working, I will say we, we still have had a network. The way we had it was through journalist connections, um, very informally to have that network where journalists are connected with each other. And sometimes we would bring them together for a meetup or a discussion or be in touch with them. And uh, the, the, the way we got information out of Iran was usually when journalists got targeted, it was always word of mouth. And before the Mahasa Amini protests as well, we had been actually relocating a lot of Afghan journalists um, and Afghan, uh, sorry, Iranian journalists and a few Afghan journalists who had gone to Iran because they were escaping Afghanistan. Um, so Iran was kind of this country where we could, you know, interact unofficially, but never could get visas, never could enter, never could officially work, and was always through contacts. And, uh, you know, I think it's really amazing to see um, even before this, and I think the Masa Amini uh, protests and everything that's happening in Iran is evident of the fact that there has been, despite of all of the suppression on uh, all the crackdown on press freedom um, and speech and gender equality in Iran, it's, it's, it's amazing to see how people have continued to remember what their rights are and to, you know, to fight for them, to, especially the younger generation. Majority of the journalists um, you see right now, like the, the ones that we have documented, we have around about 44 women reporters only, only women, 44 journalists behind bars right now. Um, this is apart from the journalists, 20, about 20 journalists who have been released. And I will talk about the conditions of journalists as well. I'll be happy to give you some details on that. But it's really amazing to see that these journalists have been working and they have been finding ways of reporting and going back in very risky circumstances where all of them know almost 100% that they're going to get arrested. And there will be other consequences too, that it won't end with an arrest, that they're very likely to get beaten. You know, any journalists that we have been able to connect with through lawyers in the prison, we know that they have been, there have been physical violence. There's everything from pulling of the hair to beating, to lashes, to not giving food for days, um, isolation, putting them in isolated positions. Also, one of the very, I think it's really brutal, where family is given misinformation about the journalist who is in prison by authorities, by guards, and sometimes they're told that the, um, the person is, individual is not alive anymore, like that kind of misinformation to really, um, I think it's really to break the spirit of, of families. So I think there's a lot of strategic tactic, which is very abusive, 
that is going on as well. And, and, and finally, I would just say that I think that strategically we see that it's really incredible to see how Iranian authorities are able to be so dispirited in terms of their moral compass, where you have a civil society which is very alive in, in their moral compass and their, and, their, and, their, and their need and their ability to understand that they really want to have freedom, free speech. They're done with this, you know, oppressive and they're mm-hmm. really risking their lives. Yes, uh, I was researching it for this show and just trying to get more information that I just today learned about the news that the judiciary court is going to um, basically they, they've charged them for some uh, conspiracy and their uh, relationship uh, uh, with the U.S. and there is going to be perhaps I mean I, I'm not sure whether or not they are going to go into that extent but perhaps uh, that penalty against these two reporters here's what I'm thinking in one end when I was working in, back in Iran I mean we were just we were dying for having our stories to be taken by the international news because we knew that if Iran case cares so much about its own face, its own prestige, especially in the Middle East. And then when they are challenged by, by the international community, they take things seriously. So in one hand, these two reporters, they got the uh, Neiman Award for uh, Conscience and Integrity from Harvard University. They got penned as two of the uh, most important important people by Time magazine on their pioneers. So they have this international recognition, yet the Iranian government is uh, threatening their their livelihood. So now I'm thinking, what is, what is the deal here? And I just I, want to see, yeah, go ahead. I want to see why, why this just, is happening. I just want to say that's precisely the reason, Sarah. Like what we are seeing is that especially the journalists who are, who have an international profile, we are seeing the government going after them even more. I will tell you mm-hmm. that there are a few journalists who had um, had been in the news and um, we had been relocating them. And we had authorities go from one city to another city, which means the, uh, the authorities are essentially in different cities. There are different authorities that are in power. So they're coordinating with each other to track down human rights defenders, activists, any any dissident voice in the country especially those who are known outside of Iran. Uh, Because also, let's say that, you know, I I mentioned that, you know, there's a strong civil society that is fighting for for freedom, right? Um, And the rights. But there's also a a huge population in Iran that believes the regime. And the regime not only wants to have, you know, that image internationally and regionally, but I think they cannot have power if they are, you know, if those people who still believe in the regime and its power um, you know, you know, do not do not remember that these dissidents are actually enemies of the state. So these charges that you see that are more aggressive against journalists and activists who are especially women who are essentially on the front of on, on the cover of the story. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, we are absolutely not surprised, but obviously we are very concerned as well, because it, we, there's no way you can enter. You can be inside the country and change any anything that is going on um, in terms of intervening any of these cases and, and whatever, whatever outcome there would be. 
Yeah, but here's the thing. I mean, um, maybe Nazila can explain this. When we were filing stories, when we were going after stories, we knew that we are doing something wrong <laughs> against the authority, against uh, the, the establishment. And yet we decided to do this. And uh, perhaps, yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm just uh, trying to see Many of the journalists knew that they are putting themselves into danger. They knew that the government is going to uh, come after them, and they still did it, and they, they they are still doing it. So, what is the mindset? What's what what's wrong with our mindset that we we are willing to put ourselves in in danger? What do you think, Nazila? Well, I think that's human nature, nature, and that's going to continue. There will be other reporters in the future uh, who will pursue the story uh, and want to expose whatever is wrong. You know, I can tell you for myself, um, we grew up in Iran. I, I did. You did too, I think. This was a life that we had. We didn't know any other life. I did know I, sometimes I was violating some of the rules, but I was doing it all the time. Uh, I was the girl who was forced to cover her hair and I hated it. And any time I found the opportunity to, to take off my headscarf or to let it uh, slide back, I would. So defying the laws of the Islamic Republic was nothing that scared me. And in the end, I was forced to leave for something that I never thought would be the reason. And I think the reason Nilufar and any other reporter has been jailed is not because a specific story that they worked and they knew that this is the story that is going to get me into trouble because she didn't know that there would be such a big uprising after, after she revealed what happened to Masa Amini. So we never know exactly what is it that we do that will um, lead to trouble. Mm-hmm. And we're, we were young, absolutely. and there will be other people who will keep on doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, the you know, I was very impressed by the women that I met uh, the first time I went to Iran in 1996. I think Iranian women, they say they're lionesses. I've never. I, the more you s- try to suppress and discriminate, the more it it is your nature to fight back. And I saw that uh, among many women who were fighting back in many ways. Uh, the first stories I did were actually about women in Iran. And I remember uh, Shakla Shirkat, who was the editor of a women's magazine. I met Faiza Hashemi, who even in those days was quite outspoken. She's, of course, become much more outspoken. So these were regime women, you know, women who wore the chador, and yet they were incredibly fierce. I just wanted to mention, we have a story up on the Stimson website about the poisoning of girls. And there, of course, is a huge suspicion that this is being done by the government itself uh, to try to keep uh, girls from protesting. And I'm reading, this is a piece we had written for us by someone in Tehran. It has a, a, a newspaper called Ham Mihan, which wrote about the attacks. And it has an emergency room doctor who is quoted as saying that the gas used in the attacks is, quote, a complicated combination of several gas agents which are impossible for ordinary people to access, unquote, i.e. it had to be the government which was using these agents to make all these girls sick uh, and uh, dizzy and nauseous. 
This is journalism that is going on today in Iran. I don't know who the reporter was, who wrote the story, who did the interview with the emergency room doctor, but it is continuing to go on. And, and journalists, as we all know, if you really are a strong believer in this profession, if this is really your, your, your vocation as much as it is your career, you don't let anybody tell you not. And one lesson I learned very early on as a journalist, and I learned it in the United States and I used it in Iran, was that I often did not ask permission before I did something. If I thought I could get away with it without asking permission, I would just go and do it. And that's what people are still doing in Iran. Incredible mm. courage. Absolutely. So one thing that I'm seeing, at least in my experience, women usually are not left alone uh, to fight this fight. Usually they have men's backing. And I'm, I'm just curious to see whether or not uh, what is your take on how and in what way men are supporting women, because everyone right now, everyone is really suffering because of the corruption, because of the bad economy, because of the bad government. Everyone is suffering. But women are putting themselves forward for this bad law. So I'm thinking, uh, what is your take on how much support women are getting in this new upheaval? Is that, is that Karen? Do you have any idea? I could, tell you from, uh, I could tell you a little bit from our experience. Actually, we are now working a lot with male reporters and journalists and activists and lawyers who are bringing the information. Briefly, I wanted to touch upon your previous question, which Nazila, you were mentioning as well that you know how you were going and reporting and and what it was like. Um, you know, you were wondering what it was like for, for Nilo, for our Elahi. I wanted to mention that we were in touch with them. And after them, they were friends. And we know that um, they were very aware of the risk of the story. Um, and this particular case, before Nilo went to the hospital and she took the, those photos that was later released to the media, she was warned by authorities. She was told not to go and she was stopped and impeded. Um, and then she still went, found a way, and she went and took photographs because she was determined. And I also want to say that all the majority of the journalists right now, Iranian journalists who are behind bars, they're local reporters who don't get uh, salaries uh, that are, you know, efficient to the economy at the time. And these journalists are really, when we speak to those journalists, we notice that they really, really, at this particular point, they really cared about it. Um, and I think the reason is that the last few years and you, you are all, you know, you're all following what's happening in the country. So you know that in the last few years, what has been going on is this really a great need for revolution. I think this Congress, the frustration was growing. Um, and I think Mahasa Amini was a culmination point. Before her, there were several incidents that were very similar that had happened in Iran, where women in different parts of the country have gotten arrested, thrown into, uh, you know, the prison. And, and the frustration kept growing. So I think there there has been a social frustration that was growing. And, and journalists were like, let's do this. Activists and journalists have all been working together. And a lot of the journalists that we had been in touch with who were informing us in the beginning, we were trying to monitor the situation. So seeing who's getting arrested in which city. And majority of the reporters who were telling us, the, you know, giving us information through social media platforms, WhatsApp, Signal, they got arrested too. So 90% of our initial sources from 2022 are all behind bars right now. Um, some of them we tried relocating. 
and then they were arrested from different cities as well. So, you know, um, I do want to say that I think that at this point, a lot of activists, journalists, lawyers, they knew what was going on and they still went on and reported because they cared about, you know, um, doing this. And speaking of men right now, we are actually getting most of our information is coming from journalists that we were able to evacuate and their husbands and brothers were in, you know, on the ground or a lot of male activists. And I think from our perspective, men are as involved in this movement as are women. And maybe mm -hmm. the reason is that it's about Iran. It's about, it is about the country. It is about their, the sense of belonging to this country and what the identity of this country is and the dignity of the country where men think that it is the same. It is all in the same. They don't want any oppression and it begins with, you know, the freedom of the women. Somehow government is now bringing men into this fight. So uh, they are using this phrase we use in Farsi uh, language, qayrat, or honor. So they are tapping into this honor issue. They are saying, okay, so you are not, I mean, the pamphlet and reports that I'm getting from my friends on the ground and from my editors, that pamphlet among uh, in, the, in, uh, in the streets, just giving out to men or uh, into taxi uh, or in in different different uh, settings that is saying you're not man enough if you let your woman to go uh, without her job or you are not man enough to don't do, do this uh, where, where is your honor where, and and uh, i've i've hearing that men do not give it Damn about any of these warnings. So, so I'm I'm thinking that uh, it's just beyond uh, man or woman. It's as uh, Kiran said, it's really about this nation and their willingness to just change what's happening. The the latest arrests I've read about came from a clubhouse uh, meeting uh, that was called to talk about. Uh, a constitutional referendum in Iran to get rid of to get rid of the Islamic Republic, essentially. And they arrested uh, Abdullah Momeni, I believe, who used to be a student activist back in the day. They arrested people who had worked with uh, Mir Hussein Musavi in, in 2009 during his campaign. Uh, there are a lot of men who have been arrested uh, as well, uh, many of them old reformists, old student activists who who have come out again in support of women, life, freedom. So I, I think women started this. Women have led it. But there are there are many, many men who who are also participating in in what is really a kind of grassroots uh, upheaval now. Yeah. Nazila, I wanted to. I yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think this this latest uprising had a very feminist voice. It had women at its forefront. But, you know, this was a, for those of us who have covered Iran for many, many years and have seen a lot of protests, we know that Iranian society is like a time bomb. And it, there are just different things that trigger the protests. And no matter how many times they silence people, the anger and the frustration is not going away. This is not about women. This is not about men. This is about the entire Iranian society. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you whether or not you have any favorite story 
your favorite story that you covered or you came across that was really meaningful to you or uh, touched you? Um, I, I wanted to see, for me, one thing that I can explain, I, I worked for Faiza Hashemi Rafsanjani in Zan newspaper, and uh, there was a time during the first, I, I think one of the first uprising, it's not an uplifting story, but it's a story that really stick with me throughout the, I mean, my, uh, until I die, probably. And that was, uh, they told me uh, they are, this uh, pressure group is in Salam newspaper. So I was working for Zan newspaper and then freelancing for Salam newspaper. Uh, they And I had many, many friends uh, in Salam newspaper. So I just ran into the newspaper, took the taxi, just got myself into the paper to see what's happening. As soon as I just I mean, I, I was in front of this. It was a five, six story building in front of the building. I saw a few of my friends were being thrown away from the fifth floor to oh. the ground. And and it was at the time I could not imagine and understand the brutality i kept telling myself how could you how, how how an iranian can kill an iranian like this and um when when i when i just saw that for me was i was even more determined to go back to a zan newspaper and to write about whatever was happening so it's not uplifting story but a story that really has never left me seeing that that kind of brutality. I'm wondering if you have um, a story that you you think that always sticks with you or is always with you. I, I have a rather creepy story yes. <laughs> uh, that I that that in hindsight is even stranger. But um, uh, I I had very good access to officials when Ahmadinejad was the president. I have no. I think it was because I worked for USA Today, and he thought if he talked to me or if his people talked to me, that they would be reaching you know the ordinary American and 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 no offense, Nasla, but not the elite that read the New York Times. <laughs> Uh, and I did an interview once with uh, Mosan Rezaei, who was. Uh, I guess he was, was he, it was already after Ahmadinejad had been, been, um, been elected, but I got an interview with him and it was in Lavizan. It was in a barracks. Uh, and we had to go through all of this security to get there. I remember my driver, who was a very experienced driver with journalists was, even he was somewhat freaked out. And we went into this room and there was a long table and a bunch of scruffy looking men in military fatigues on one side of the table with, you know, the three days growth and everything. And on the other side, there was me, my translator and Mosen Rezai. And we did the interview and so on. And then I was told a year or so later that one of the scruffy looking men on the other side of the table was Qasem Soleimani, <laughs> who was curious about what the American journalist was going to ask this old uh, you know, IRGC guy. And um, it, it impressed me with his, uh, his intelligence in a way, but it also made me feel very strange, especially given, given the role that he, he later, uh, later assumed. There was one other too, if I may. Um, yeah. It's at the very end of my book, uh, Bitter Friends, Bosom Enemies, 
Uh, mm -hmm. Iran, the U.S., and the twisted path to confrontation. And it was during a period when it looked like the U.S. might go to war with Iran. How many times have we had? Um, and I, I was interviewing this woman in South Tehran, um, and uh, she told me that we have a special respect for Americans. When my children watch TV, they always say the people of the U.S. are very good, but their government is not good. And then she said, I would sacrifice myself and my four kids for God. Bush and the United States should not force their ways on us. And then she added, we don't want anything bad to happen. Pray for us. We always pray for you. It was, you know, such a gut punch to meet this poor woman who, who had this good feeling toward the people of my country and who was patriotic and would defend her country against the United States. But uh, that was the last thing she wanted to have to do to defend Iran against the mm -hmm. United States. That, that always stuck with me. Mm -hmm. um, can I ask Barbara, did you, did you speak to her or? Yeah. yeah, this you, is someone I interviewed her? in South Tehran. Wow. I mean, I used really? to go everywhere, you know, and, and I, I, I went as many places as I could. Uh, and and spoke to as many ordinary people as I could. I didn't just interview Mohsen Rizai or, or, or sit with Quids Force uh, folks, although I met a fair number of them as well, uh, I have to say. Uh, and, of course, Ahmadinejad himself. You, you learn so work. much about how, how, how policies reverberate in a nation by speaking to ordinary people. You can see what's happening, what... Qasem Soleimani is doing what he did and how much, you know, how he was received by the people that tells a lot about why he was so successful. Yeah. If I may, one other anecdote, when Rouhani was inaugurated, that was my last trip there. And I remember going around to shops and whatnot and asking people, what do you think of Rouhani? And they basically said, oh, he's the same as all the others. Mm. And I found that Americans were more excited about Rouhani than Iranians were, at least at the beginning. I don't know. I mean, the, the sense of cynicism uh, after Hatani, you know, the sense of cynicism about the system just kept growing and growing and growing. And that's why Nazla is right. I mean, it is a time bomb. It's just, you know, what will spark, uh, spark the fire. Mm -hmm. So I want to take on Kiran and Nazila, your favorite stories. Favorite stories in Iran? Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to tell. It's very hard. I mean, um, you know, I, I think I have always been baffled by the dichotomy in Iran. Um, so I'm going to tell you one story. Uh, this is early 1990s. The Iranian population has grown far too much. And now the Iranian government is introducing... Um, birth control. So they offer free uh, birth control pills. Um, and to men, they, they provide them with free vasectomy. And vasectomy is not viewed very positively in the West at all. But somehow they had a fatwa from Khamenei, who had just become the supreme leader, that it was fine. It was okay. Or even, he, I don't remember what the fatwa was, but he was even encouraging. Um, so they actually invited me to go to one of the clinics where they were performing vasectomy. And this was still the days when I was fully covered, wore black, wore my longest coat, wore my longest headscarf. 
wrap myself, didn't show a strand of hair. We went to the clinic um, and I was with this British reporter and the doctor came out and asked if I wanted to go in and see what they were doing. And there was a minder from the Ministry of Culture, a female woman. And we looked at each other and she said, yes. And when she said, yes, I said, yes, too. (laughs) So the three of us went into the room where three men were lying on a bed. They were exposed. And um, and there was this doctor who looked at us as if we were medical students and showed us this tool he had. And he said, you look at this, it's as simple as this. And they, the the men were fully awake. um, And um, I I think it was just, you know, a very simple operation. They were looking at us, they had blushed. I tried to ignore their faces. <laughs> and we just stood there and watched this operation. The guy fully used covered. his tool. Uh, I was fully covered, but I was watching the whole thing. And nobody had thought to get permission from these poor guys who were so embarrassed. Uh, we, I was in my 20s, and this other lady who was from the Ministry of Culture was also in her 20s. When we walked out, we thought we'd watch some kind of like an interesting scientific uh, procedure. And I didn't realize that this young British guy who was with us, he was a lot more embarrassed than we were. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Did you write about this? No, I didn't write about it. I was not a reporter then. This was like, I was in my very early 20s. I didn't have credentials to work as a reporter. I was just working as a translator. But, you know, this probably, this whole thing did not fall under some of the laws that they have to keep women away mm-hmm. from <laughs> exposed men. <laughs> that's that's funny story. That's funny. I, I will say this yeah. is a perfect anecdote to share in, in the times that we are in right now with, with mm-hmm. all of the, you know, uh, the gender barriers um, you know that you could you could um, remember something like that and discuss something like that as well. Mm-hmm. I would imagine yeah. some uh, because we get trolled by Iranian trolls a lot. Um, you know, some government hackers and stuff. I would say this kind of stuff kind of can get a lot of attention uh, of the wrong people too. But I'm, I'm mm-hmm. glad that you remember that. So, Karen, do you have a, any favorite story that you would like to share? Sarah, I would say that I actually, I, I mean, you know, I haven't worked in Iran. Um, I, I will say there's something that I wanted to mention was, you know, uh, well, while Barbara was talking about it, I was thinking, oh, you know, I had just a few understanding that I had of Iran was when I was a war correspondent and I worked in Iraq and Syria. And so, like, I knew Hashtashabi. Before I started this organization, we, you know, I just knew Iran as, you know, these um, security agency trying to manipulate everything in the region. And I, you know, I had covered Ahashtashabi a little bit because uh, I was covering Iraq and um, um, I covered a little bit of Syria. And I saw Iran in different forms of disrupting the region, you know, with a very different perspective, sometimes in the Kurdish regions. Um, so that, you know, Iranian um, uh, militia and, and, you know, all of these other agencies, security agencies came up. Um, a lot in my work. Um, but I think w- 
I had no idea before when I was doing that work, I had no idea that Iranian journalists, which the work that I do now and with the organization and, you know, the work that our team does, that, you know, so much of learning has happened to see how Iranian journalists in that environment have worked. So I am just, you know, I think I'm just amazed by that, how Iranian journalists have continued their work in the country. And then also a lot of journalists who leave the country and for decades, um, you know, there are so many Iranian, amazing Iranian journalists who live in the US and UK and um, Europe and Turkey who are continuing the work. They've started news channels, they work in exile, then they, they continue doing the reporting. And there's, I think that also has created that kind of connection, the bridge between the world outside of Iran and inside Iran because of these people who are who have done that work after getting into prison and then released from prison and then leaving the country. And I think that's just incredible um, of how Iranian civil society has continued to believing something that they can see does not exist for them in their in their daily life. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you very much. Please stay put with me. You are watching and listening to Peace Mindedly, a podcast featuring peaceful bridge makers. For this hour, we are talking with Nazila Fatih, author of The Lonely War, One Woman's Account of Struggle for Modern Iran, and also former New York New York Times correspondent in Tehran, Barbara Slaven, distinguished fellow at my my English Stimson Center and also the former director of the Future of Iran Initiative and Kara Nazish, award-winning journalist and founding director of Coalition for Women in Journalism, short for CFWIJ. And we are talking about the journalism in Iran, how it's really unfolding, what's happening, and uh, the danger of being a journalist in, 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 in countries like Iran, countries like Russia, probably experience the same fate when you do not have an open society or democratic society and then you do have people who really want to fight for social justice fight for freedom so therefore you have this kind of situations that punish uh, journalists for the work that they are doing at the end of every program we ask our guests to share something meaningful about peace about kindness and compassion and um, first I really would like to see whether or not our guests would like to share anything further about themselves and about the work that they do. And then we are going to go close the program with the uh, peace, kindness, and compassion. So I'm wondering, I, I, I'll start with Kiran. Would you like to tell us about your organization and the work that you are doing right now? Um, thank you. I, um, we, we, it's, we're called the Coalition for Women in Journalism. We're a New York-based uh, press freedom um, and advocacy organization for women and non-binary journalists. Um, we cover 128 countries. Uh, we monitor press freedom um, you know, violations against women and non-binary journalists. And in that, you know, a lot of times we are involved in advocacy, so helping um, with cases where journalists are imprisoned, put behind bars, or they are at risk. So we also do emergency assistance, um, legal assistance, and those kind of things. Um, you could say we're something like a grassroots version of Reporters Without Borders, but for women. We are about to actually this year, later this year, we're launching a, a rebranding our, 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 our work because a lot of it is press freedom related and we started as a support organization. So. 
Um, we are uh, we're going to be launching with a new name called Women Press Freedom um, later this year. We'll would love to keep everyone in loop as well. Um, yeah, and and you know, in that Iran is essentially Iran has uh, you know from the beginning Iran has been one of the top countries that we have been on the radar because it's one of the top five countries has always been one of the top five countries when it comes to imprisonments of women journalists. So China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Russia, and Turkey. Um, so, but but right now um, Iran is the top top jailer of women journalists around the world. Wow, top jailer. At least we got to top uh, top number one in something. My goodness. Um, and uh, Barbara, yeah, update us about yourself and uh, any closing before we go for the last piece. Yeah, I, you know, one of the things I've enjoyed the most uh, since I left uh, daily journalism is um, working on people to people relations of various sorts when in my previous job, uh, I was able to bring a documentary filmmaker from Iran uh, to to show uh, a film about the Hamoons, which is a endangered wetland on the border with Afghanistan and Pakistan. And I also had programs with athletes and people who promoted uh, exchanges having to do with wrestling and with um, with volleyball and 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 these sorts of things. I I very much enjoyed that. And I have a blog called Middle East Voices, which I've started up at the Stimson Center. And we have uh, some folks from Iran who do occasionally write for it as well, uh, as well as people from other countries and places in the Middle East. Uh, so I'm doing my bit to, to keep people connected and to, to try to give a sense of what it's really like on the ground um, for those of us who can't go to Iran anymore. And unfortunately, That includes a, a, a lengthening list of, of people who would Absolutely. love to act but can't. Absolutely, yes. I think I'm one of them. Nazila, go ahead. So I consider myself a storyteller. And because I wasn't able to tell my favorite story from inside Iran, I decided to tell stories to kids because I am a mother. I have two kids who grew up here and know very little about their home country. So I, I wrote four children's uh, books, all of them based on Persian history and Persian figures. And um, they are just geared toward kids of Iranian origin who have grown up here and know very little about Iran and history of Iran. My next book is about Cambodia or Kambis, uh, the son of Cyrus. One of the books about, is about Cyrus One is about Razi and one is about Abu Ali Sina. And one of them, of course, is about two Iranian women, uh, Puran Docht, uh, a, a queen and also a warrior who fought against the uh, Arabs uh, during the invasion that led to the fall of the Persian Empire. Fascinating. Where can we find those books? They are all on Amazon. Excellent. Uh, tell me the titles. Do you remember the titles again? Uh, my name is Cyrus. Avicina, the father of modern medicine. Razi, the man who invented how to make alcohol. And the Persian warrior and her queen. Excellent. Fascinating. Fascinating. And then, yes, I'm going to invite our guests to share something meaningful about peace, kindness, and compassion. Maybe I'm, I'm guessing who would like to go first. 
Uh, go, Barbara. Yes, we are going to start with you. <laughs> well, look, I've tried to be a peacemaker my whole life. I haven't, I haven't succeeded very well, I must say. Uh, but um, here's a story. It's about not Iran for a change. When I was uh, a journalist in the 90s, I went to North Korea, which was uh, going through a terrible famine. And uh, I didn't know what could I bring, what could I bring. I, I bought these giant chocolate bars at a, a local store. I mean, they were quite large. And I remember we were, the government there wanted publicity for the famine because they wanted food aid. And they let us travel pretty much anywhere. And we went into this little village. We went into people's homes. We saw they had no food. And there was this little kid and I gave him this chocolate bar and he held it like it was glass that would break in his hands. And, you know, all I could imagine was that he and his family would eat a little bit of it every day, you know, just to have something sweet and to have some calories. That, uh, that, that, it was a, it was my gesture anyway, to try to help uh, people who were in desperate, desperate straits. And Beautiful. I always remember the governments may be our enemies, but the people are never our enemies. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Barbara. I believe I'm going to go to Nazila next. Well, I don't have any words of wisdom for you, uh, Sarah, but I can tell you, I grew up uh, during the war with Iraq, eight years, and all my friends, people of my generation still remember those days. And I can tell you with certainty that none of us want to see those days again or um, any kind of invasion or attack or any kind of any kind of move that would would lead to bloodshed and i hope that doesn't happen anymore beautiful thank you very much and yes kira thank you i don't know what story to share i i think i can share a little bit about myself and the organization um Briefly, I, I, studied, I, I started my career in Pakistan as a Pakistani journalist um, in 1999, before 9-11. And, and we were, like when I started my career, we were all about science and technology and the millennium was going to happen. So it was a very different mentality. And, but anyways, eventually I, I spent most of my career, you know, covering, you know, the post 9-11 world from Pakistan to Afghanistan, the region, India. Uh, dabbled with, you know, sometimes teaching journalism as well at different universities in different countries around the world. I covered the Middle East, uh, Mexico, Latin America. And one thing that I just, um, I think every every few years of my career as a, as a woman reporter, um, oftentimes I was in places where I was, especially when I was a war correspondent, I was the only one in a lot of, in, in, in different ways, sometimes the only woman, sometimes the only woman of color. And there were all of these other issues that were always going on with women and, you know, with, you know, I think I was a little privileged in my career, but I, I saw a lot of things that were happening to women in general all over the world. And you were talking about like, let's talk about something like peace, kindness. And um, I would say, you know, I think that in my, my entire career, I just saw women not being treated equally in journalism generally anywhere but especially in, in, in journalism and media um, and, and and the difficulties that they faced had everything to do from everything between sexual harassment to when they were targeted you know as journalists that they had no resources 
not the same kind of um, support systems internationally or locally. Um, I worked at the New York Times briefly and Jill Abramson was fired when I was there and you know the kind of reaction of the of the newsroom at the time and of the industry um, this is all before me too and I think that um, in that moment you know there was there was this instinct where you know after 20 years in in, the, in my career I got really tired sick and literally like I think literally I was hospitalized as well because the PTSD kind of grew and a lot of that was because of the injustices that I saw as a woman for myself and for my fellow female journalists so when I started this organization, it was an act of love. It was an act of compassion to try to fix things that are around, that were happening around us everywhere around the world, in the US, but also in other parts of the world where I had worked. And, and I think that is what we are trying to do. And I think to, to some extent, we're not, you know, we're still a small organization, but to some extent that compassion and kindness works. We have been able to, you know, evacuate Afghan journalists and Ukrainian journalists and, you know, journalists who are in crisis. We have released women journalists from prisons. Um, and a lot of that, you know, that doing the rebuilding, the nurturing um, worked and it works. And um, so I think the alternative of anger for me was was compassion and love. And I think sometimes it works if you do it strategically. Beautiful. Thank you so very much for being with me, for being on this show, in this program. I learned a great deal and truly appreciate Thank you so much. Thank you for having mm-hmm. us. Absolutely. Thank Khoda you. Hafiz.